God's Word in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Well, some of you may have watched the television show Undercover Boss. In the show, a high-level executive will get a change in appearance and then a new identity, and then they will take an entry-level position at the company. So though maybe the owner or the president or the chief financial officer or CEO they are there as a bag boy or there as a store clerk. And as they interact with the everyday customers, as they interact with the everyday workers, they are given a new sight into the company. They see things that they had not been able to see before. And then the end of the show is always surprising as the people who have been complaining and saying how horrible the company is and how the CEO doesn't know anything about the company and they'd all be better if they did this. They realize, oh, this is the CEO of the company. And so eyes are open from both directions, both from the CEO to what things might be really like and from the employees to the CEO and what he is like. You know, it's an amazing aspect of life that we can experience the same things but have completely different responses to it. Even in one lifetime, you can experience the same thing and view it differently. The movie you just found hilarious as a kid 
when you watch with your own children, you, ooh, that's kind of a little bit worse than I thought. Uh, that song that you just loved, now you're not so sure about. That hymn that you used to find boring, now brings joy to your heart as you see and believe who Jesus is. Well, in the passage we read this morning, we see that in less than 24 hours, these two men have a complete change in sight. They have a progression of how they see Jesus. If you look at your bulletin on the back, you'll see that there are four things. First, they see Jesus as an unaware stranger in the first few verses. That'll be our longest section, by the way. Then, they come to see Jesus as an insightful teacher. Then, He's an honored host, but they end seeing and believing that Jesus is the risen Lord. Well, let's look first at this unaware stranger. Because Luke begins, actually before this, he records that this day began with the women going early to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body. Now that implies something very important that we need to realize. And that is, women don't go, or men don't go for that matter as well, don't go to a tomb to anoint a body, if you think, They've risen from the dead. The early disciples, the women, they did not believe Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Only the clear evidence before them is what convinced them that this really happened. Well, the women come back and they report it to the men. Peter and John then go as well and find the tomb empty. And then we're told of these two men. They're not part of Jesus' 11 disciples. Um, they're other disciples, and they are walking to this village called Emmaus, tells us in Luke 24, 13. And, as you might expect, these two disciples are rehearsing all that's gone on over the last few days. Surely there was such a whirlwind of activity of Jesus' ministry over the last few years, but the last week has just been incredible. You've probably had seasons of your life where you've been busy doing something, and then a week later, someone says, oh, do you remember when we did that last week? And you're like, was that just a week ago? That feels like yesterday. And oddly, it feels like a year ago, too. And we're so busy, and all of it is just such a whirlwind. And that's what these disciples have gone through. What's happened in the last week? Well, in the last week, Jesus approached Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of adoration. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of of David. However, Jesus didn't then rejoice about this. He wept over Jerusalem for her refusal to recognize him. It was rather odd considering they were chanting that Jesus is the coming king, yet Jesus said in Luke 19:42 that his coming was hidden from their eyes. You know, they could see Jesus, they could proclaim him to be king, but they didn't actually see. They didn't actually perceive who he was. In other words, it's the difference between seeing and perceiving. The difference between merely recognizing information versus understanding and applying it. A few years ago, the air conditioner in here and one of the other rooms went out. And Jared and some friends graciously came and gave their time to work on it. And at one point, we were all looking at an electric, electric panel. And they were all going, oh, yeah, yeah. And one person had no idea what they were talking about. It wasn't Jared. I was looking, I wasn't perceiving. They could all look at it and go, oh, well, this is obvious. I was looking, I didn't perceive. And 
That's what's happening in this gospel. People are looking at Jesus. They could say, well, he's the king, but they haven't perceived the reality of what is there. Along with Jesus coming on the, into Jerusalem on the donkey, the disciples saw many other events. They saw Jesus cleanse the temple, debate the religious leaders, foretell of coming destruction and give warnings. They could recount Jesus' betrayal, his condemnation, his sham trial, Pilate sending him to crucifixion. But we're seeing here they didn't really know what it was all about. They were discussing the women who this morning had said, the tomb is empty. But what is this all for? They don't know. If these events had any meaning, they couldn't grasp it. So much had gone on and so had been so overwhelming, but they had not truly perceived and understood. Then, right in the middle of them, discussing all these events, what do you think that was about? Why do you think Jesus allowed himself to be arrested? Why didn't he run away? Why, why, why? Jesus walks right up to him. It's interesting. You know, if you go on a hike, maybe go to the Wichita Mountains or somewhere else, you're walking, you see someone else, you might say hi, but you wouldn't expect them to say hi and then start walking with you. They would say hi and keep going. But Jesus says hello or shalom probably and then starts walking with them. In their culture, that was not as weird. And so they start talking about what's going on. And yet it, you may notice in verse 16, it says the men do not recognize him. Now we can run into all kinds of weird speculation about resurrection bodies Except notice it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. For us to know God, he has to open our eyes to see. You had a point prior to Jesus' crucifixion. He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, people are saying you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Moses. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus then did not reply, well, very insightful, Peter. I could tell you're a very smart person. I could tell you had the power of deduction and you were able to figure out who I was. No, Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, God surely used Peter's brain to help Peter realize that. However, to know God, God must first make himself known to us. If we seek God, it's because he sought us first. If we love God, it's because he loved us first. Now this should humble us, for our salvation is only of God. We should never look down on others and think, well, why don't they believe? They're so dumb not to believe. Well, if God hadn't opened our eyes, we would not believe either. You know, one mistake people make from this, though, is then to wrongly conclude well, it doesn't matter what we do because only God's going to open people's eyes. Well, that's not true. God opens eyes by logic, by words, by using our brains, by us seeking Him. Thus, there's this mystery that God must act and we are called to act too. At this point of the story, though, in Luke 24, these two men are kept from recognizing Jesus. And then Jesus asks them, well, what are you talking about? In utter shock, the two men, notice in verse 17, it says they stop walking. You know, they got this seven-mile journey. They're probably not trying to take their time. And they just stop. And it says they're sad. Like, how in the world could you not know what's going on? 
It'd be like being on September 12th, 2001, and you asking someone, man, what do you think about yesterday? And they go, well, what happened yesterday? Like, how do you not know what happened yesterday on 9-11? All the planes, the, the hijackings, the terrorists? And Jesus is like, well, what things? What are y'all talking about? And then it says they go on and they tell him some things. But notice what they think of Jesus at this point is that Jesus is just an unaware stranger. Jesus is no one important to them. He's just some guy who doesn't know what's been going on. And what do they say? They say that Jesus was a prophet, that he performed powerful deeds. He spoke wonderful words. They tell of how he had various deeds, words, and events. And surely they expanded on those, but we're just given a snapshot. And yet notice something important here. That is, these men are recall, recalling historical acts. They are talking about things that happened, real and true events in time and space. Thus they refer to Jesus of Nazareth, a real place. These men are not, are not in any way coming up with a myth or a story to help them cope with the loss of Jesus. This is not what they hoped had happened or wished had happened or desired to happen. In fact, they think what happened is impossible. You know, the Bible in general, and this story in particular, are always based on real historical facts. And amazingly, though they saw in the person in front of them as merely an unaware stranger, they believed that Jesus was a prophet. You know, earlier, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ. But it seems their faith is now shaken. Not just a Christ anymore, but merely a prophet. And verse 20 tells us, they go on to tell how their religious leaders condemned Jesus to death and then crucified him. You know, Jesus', Jesus crucifixion was such a startling blow that they became disillusioned and disoriented. We see that because notice what they declare in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now that's past tense. Had hoped. Their hope was placed in Jesus, but it's now the third day since he was crucified. Now, part of the problem is they had their hope misplaced in that they thought Jesus was coming to resurrect the nation of Israel, to restore the nation of Israel to prominence, to conquer the Romans. And yet Jesus had a much greater redemption than that. But though that was their hope, and since that was their hope, it was nailed to the Roman cross. Jesus, as merely a military leader, did not fulfill what they were expecting. And so their hope, their misplaced hope, was dashed. And you could see a glimmer of hope, though, because they express in verses 22 and 23 that some of their women went to the tomb and they found it empty. And even others, too. So here we have this strange irony. They're talking to Jesus, expressing their disillusionment in who Jesus was. Now their views of Jesus began a major transition though, for in verses 25 through 27, we'll see that they come to see Jesus as an insightful teacher. If you look at verse 25, it says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's interesting, Jesus responds to their 
disorientation. They are disillusionment by rebuking them. I used to be a math teacher. Various times I've led small groups. I've had other opportunities to lead people in discussions. And I can just say, in all the tips I've been given, all the instruction, I've never been told to say, that answer was a bunch of foolish nonsense. You don't understand anything. You know, you're supposed to say, oh, what a good question. Oh, man, that's really insightful, even if you think that's dumb. You're supposed to encourage them, give them positive feedback, reinforce them. Well, Jesus didn't get the memo because he's quite rude. You foolish people. You know, he's not a 21st century positive guy. He doesn't say, well, no big deal, guys. I understand why you're fearful. At least you're trying. That's what matters to me. At least you're trying. Now, we don't have the omniscience of Jesus. So we can't read people's hearts. But we do see other places in Scripture where people are called fools for what they believe. For example, Galatians 3.1, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Paul speaks speaks strongly because when we find our hope in our goodness for God rather than God's goodness for us, we're acting like fools. When we think our efforts alone not God's Spirit empowering us. If we think our efforts alone will lead us to change, then we're acting like fools. Sometimes we need to realize we're being fools. And Jesus tells that to these men. In fact, Jesus' words of rebuke are similar to verse 5. The angels, when they meet the women, they say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? They're basically saying, look, Jesus told you he's going to rise again. Why are you all here? You should know this wasn't going to happen. And then notice what it says in verse 26. Was it not necessary, Jesus tells them, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he continues, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus answers his own rhetorical question. Didn't the Messiah need to go through all this? Well, yes. And then he explains it all to them. Now, we're not given the exact passages, but we are told that beginning with Moses, that would be Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books he wrote, and from all the prophets, Jesus explained all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Now, this was a seven-mile walk. They'd already been walking for some time. So in this last little bit, somewhere probably between an hour and four hours, Jesus gives a nice Old Testament overview. Now, sure, it would be nice if we had that Old Testament overview, but we're given one verse saying that he gave it. So what did Jesus say? I don't know, but he probably said something like this. He probably pointed to Genesis 3.15, where God promised that a seed of a woman would crush the serpent, though the seed would have his heel bruised. Or, having just had the Passover, Jesus probably referred to the law and pointed out how it told of the ultimate Lamb of God that would come to take away the sin of the world. 
Or he probably looked in the Psalms. Don't you all remember Psalm 22 where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 31 where the righteous sufferer cries out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Or Psalm 118 that says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Or Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And we could go on and on to show how Jesus fulfills being the prophet that Deuteronomy 18 foretold of, the great high priest of Leviticus, the son of man foretold of in Daniel 7, and the king in the line of David, who would rule forever in line with Second Samuel 7. Yes, it's true that you could read the documents of Jesus' lifetime and realize that the religious leaders didn't expect a Messiah like this. Yet though they didn't expect it, it is what the Old Testament taught. Not only taught, but it's what Jesus is explaining to them here in Luke chapter 24. Thus, Jesus calls them foolish. And slow of heart. Because both the scriptures and his explanation of the scriptures showed this. Now since Jesus has suffered of this, the scriptures as told, he has been glorified. You know, Paul expands on this Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Jesus' suffering led to his glory. And Jesus teaches an important truth here, and that is that you can know a lot of the Bible and miss the whole point. You can be active in church activities. You can know how to teach Bible lessons. You can be a moral person and miss the whole point of the Bible. These men knew the verses Jesus was talking about, but they missed the big picture. They lost the forest through the trees. You know, the big picture of the Bible is that God's work of redemption comes through His Son, Jesus. And notice the language Luke uses to emphasize this. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. In John 5.39, Jesus likewise says, You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know, the Bible is not primarily an instruction book with rules on how to live, though there are definitely commands and principles. The Bible is not primarily an abstract philosophy or theology textbook to which we refer as we seek answers to life though it definitely has true philosophy and theology. The Bible is not primarily a love letter, though it tells of God's love. The Bible is about Jesus and how he made us, and then when we sinned, how he made a way to redeem us back to him. Thus, the commands and rules are there because they are a reflection of Christ and who he is and how he wants us to live. The philosophy and theology focus on Christ. And the Bible's love is not some generic love, but that of a crucified and risen Messiah. And this is the key, not only to understanding your Bible, but understanding life. 
Jesus is the center of the meaning of Scripture and us. And as you align your life with Him, disorientation gives way to orientation. Well, while these two men have had their eyes open to understand the Scriptures, their eyes are still closed to Jesus being right in front of them. However, we see them changing their view of Him, for in verses 28 through 31, He is their honored host. We see that the third section, honored host, verses 28 through 31. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And so they're getting close to Emmaus, and in some way Jesus is giving the impression, well, I'm going on. Well, they're saying, well, no, it's almost dark, and there's no inns along the way. You should stay. Come with us. we got a place. Eat with us. And then, when he does stay, they honor him by allowing him to oversee the meal. In their culture, whoever oversees the meal is the honored host, and Jesus is given this privilege, this honor by these men who just met him. And then at this meal, Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, he blesses it in breaking it. And immediately upon Jesus breaking the bread and giving it to him, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So why did Jesus wait and not reveal himself earlier? Well, Jesus waited because they and we need to have eyes to see even when he's not with us. Because he was showing them, look, from all the scriptures, you can know who I am. You don't need me to appear before your eyes. Turn to God's word and your eyes will be given sight. Yet, why is it that they now recognize Jesus? Well, the most obvious answer is because God opened their eyes. But just as in verse 16, their eyes were kept from seeing and now they are open. So what is it? Well, God often uses means to inform us. And we even told, if you look at verse 35, when they returned to the other 11 disciples, it says, then they, these two men, told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Was it when he broke the bread, his palms turned open and they saw his nail-pierced hands? Perhaps. Was it his tone of voice? Perhaps. Was it just like the fact that it was like the Passover meal Jesus gave? Well, actually, that couldn't be because... Only the 12 disciples, including Judas, were there. And these two men are not part of those 12. Ultimately, we're not told what happened in the breaking of bread that allowed it to happen. And the danger that many fall into is to read into this some kind of spiritual or mystical act that we must now follow. You know, the description of Jesus making himself known in this way is not a description of how Jesus will make himself known for all time. If that were the case, it's interesting that the rest of the New Testament never gives any command to take the Lord's Supper because in that you will get to an extra presence of the Lord. Rather, like Jesus said, we're do this, told to do this in remembrance of me. You know, to have God's presence, you know, we don't have to hunt for hidden clues in the Bible. We're clearly given God's presence by faith in His Son. We're given God's presence for where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. When we gather as God's people, we get God's presence. And so in this case, we're not explicitly told how the breaking of bread did it, but however it happened, 
we now see their immediate change, for they recognize that they've seen Jesus as risen Lord, our fourth and last point. Notice what they say in verse 32. Were not our hearts burning as he spoke to us on the road and as he opened the scriptures to us? And they must have immediately began rehearsing that day. And they both realized that Jesus explaining of scripture had encouraged them and warmed their hearts, so to speak. Now those of us who focus on truth can be rightly concerned about emotions. We, oh, follow your heart, that's not a good idea. Yet as humans, we often tend to correct an abuse by swinging to the other side. Coming to know Christ should bring joy. It should warm our hearts. When we gather to sing, we should have more excitement than when our parents tell us to do the dishes or when we have to clean up our room. There should be joy as we're singing of the risen Savior who's forgiven our sins, who's given us meaning, hope, and life. You may have heard of the famous Methodist minister, John Wesley. You may have known that he came to Georgia, the state of Georgia in the United States, as a missionary in the 1730s. But listen to about what he wrote about that time. He says, My chief motive in going to Georgia is the hope of saving my own soul. I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel by preaching it to the heathen. He was going as a missionary for the very hope of saving himself. He knew the facts of the gospel. He could even preach the gospel, but he realized it meant nothing to him. He writes a few years later, that he went rather unwillingly to hear someone read Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. Now, I'm sure that sounds very exciting to you, but nonetheless, Wesley writes, while Luther was describing in his preface to the Epistle of the Romans, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for my salvation. Like the disciples, like Wesley, you can know the Bible stories. You can say the right things, but Jesus has not captivated you. So cry out to him that he gives you eyes to see and a heart that embraces that he is the most glorious thing. May we have, like Wesley and those disciples, no longer slow hearts to believe, but burning hearts that find joy in our risen savior amazingly we're told in verse 33 these men then arise at that very hour and return to jerusalem they just told jesus it's too late to go anywhere else but they're so excited they get up and make the seven mile journey in the dark back to jerusalem and when they get there they're told by the 11 disciples indeed the lord has arisen and he had appeared to simon that day and then they convey what happened on the road to Emmaus, and how they came to know him as they broke the bread. You know, notice, they're no longer talking about having hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. They're no longer talking about Jesus as though he was an unaware stranger or an insightful teacher, or someone who should be honored as a host, nor are they still disillusioned or disoriented. Rather, as they come to see Jesus as the risen Savior and Lord, they worship And they tell others. They eagerly and expectantly want to share with others. 
And notice, as we said at the beginning, this is not because they conjured up a good story. Their changed mindset, their reinvigorated hope, was not built on clever myths, but the fact of seeing Jesus in their presence. They were changed by having the scriptures clearly explained and illumined in seeing Christ. So we've noted the progression of these two men in this day and their understanding of Jesus. He was first merely just an unaware stranger. Then he was an insightful teacher. Then he was an honored host. And yet when God opened their eyes to realize and see and believe, they saw that Jesus is the risen Lord. And yet it's interesting. This is not just the type of progression we see here. In fact, it's a progression seen commonly in the Lament Psalms. In the Psalms, there's 150, and there's a group which we call Lament Psalms. They're Psalms when the authors are expressing deep sorrow because of suffering in this world. And like the disciples, they often begin disillusioned, discouraged, disappointed. They thought God was like this, but life doesn't seem to be going that way. And yet, like these two disciples, as they listen to God's word, as they turn to God, their disillusionment gives way to illusion. Their disorientation gives way to confident, hopeful faith. In all of this, we have to be careful because if Christianity is just a religious box you check, you have a census, have something else, got to say religion, okay, I'm Christian, then you'll never be filled with resurrection, hope, and confidence. If you merely believe Jesus is a good teacher, you'll never have joyful hope in the midst of the chaos of life. If Christianity is just merely our culture's way of reaching out to God, you might have some nice experiences in worship services. You might have some good morals for your life. However, the tragedies of life, the trials of life, they will leave you like those disciples, discouraged, disillusioned, disoriented. But if you can see and believe that Jesus is more than just an insightful teacher, but he is God's own son who came to die, to rise again, then you can have hope. You know, it's interesting. The disciples were discouraged because they had hoped that Jesus was the redeemer of Israel. And yet the wonderful news is Jesus' redemption of Israel is far better than they had hoped. Let's just say that they were right. And Jesus did come in on that white stallion with a sword and he was able to defeat all the Romans. Well, they would be free militarily, physically, but they would still be dead in their sins. They would still all die and have to face God without any hope. Jesus is a much better redeemer than they had hoped. Because Jesus came to redeem us not from any physical foe, but our greatest foe, our spiritual one, death. And Jesus came by conquering death and rising again to defeat all the effects of death. Disease, disasters, broken relationships, sickness, even death. And so if we can come to see Jesus as the Redeemer, not just of something now, but our sins for all eternity, then we can have true and lasting hope. You know, notice what Romans 10.9 clearly expresses. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You know, Jesus came to save us from sin and all the sorrows that flow from it. Jesus paid the price for them and rose again so that we can live with God. And all who come to faith in Christ will one day reign with him forever where there will no more be any sickness, sorrow, suffering, or death. So do you see the risen Lord? God, would you give us eyes to see and savor your Son? Let's pray. Lord, we are able to hear. We're able to explain things. And yet, Lord, it takes your Spirit to work in our hearts. So, Lord, would your Spirit work in each of us For those of us who have believed for years, would you stir afresh our love and joy in you? For those who have known facts but have never truly trusted in you, would today be the day in which they see and savor you for all that you are? We thank you for your Son coming, graciously giving his life, so that we might might not know the punishment of our sin, but we might know only your forgiveness, your grace, and love. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.